Hello and welcome back to the Crime Guys Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. Well, we got an interesting case out of North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. Hot, hot thing, boy. Hot thing, boy. Fort, good old Fort Bragg. There's so many true crime stories attached to these large military bases. None larger than Fort Bragg, which kind of steals yes. the thunder. But, yeah, uh, we have plenty of military bases here in North Carolina, that's for sure. Did we not do a case surrounding uh, that, that, you know, involved Fort oh, yeah, Bragg already? We have. I feel like we did, yeah. Probably multiple cases. Yeah, it, it's, it's, um, I mean, I would say by definition, and according to this Google search I just did, it's it's one of the most violent cities in America. 45 per 1,000 residents. Fayetteville? Um, is a victim of a crime in Fayetteville, yes. You wouldn't think Fayetteville when you think, you know, like most violent, highest crime rate cities in America, you'd think, you know, Chicago. No. You know, there's Well, people Detroit, don't really think. Some, some cities uh, in, the, in middle of America where you think that would be the highest, maybe even New York City, but yeah. Well, it's kind of funny that people, they overlook these little southern cities because they think they're so charming. And, of course, when you Google it, they're going to give you beautiful pictures of downtown and everything is is all nice and, and gravy. But, I mean, the reality of it is there's just as violent cities here in the south as well, you know, like Memphis. Memphis is another city yeah. a lot of people don't realize. A very high crime rate. Um, One of those so. cities that on the, they, they focus on the first 48, I believe, Memphis. Memphis, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, wouldn't but... Doubt it. There's more to this case than just a you know a military story, uh, military family being killed. There is we we've did a series on double jeopardy. If you remember, we did a you know yes. a, a compilation of those cases. This proves that that doesn't always hold up. That you can be tried multiple times for the same murder and ultimately be found guilty if you involve the federal government in your crime. Yeah. And when the military's the involved, the federal government's involved, <laughs> and they can just straight up say oh you know what that double jeopardy thing now we're the federal government we can go ahead and try you yeah. again bitch if you're yeah if you're involved in the federal government all bets are off yep like you can't count on anything they're gonna do what they want to do yeah and in a case this large thank god they did though right oh 100 yeah yeah it's nice it is kind of a wacky wacky rule the double jeopardy thing in my opinion i mean i don't want people just being tried over and over again don't get me wrong but yeah. there are times where someone gets acquitted on kind of a, a loophole or a fluke you know, yeah. they, and it's like, oh man, you just really let a, a murderer walk free. Yeah, or we've seen we've seen law enforcement or attorneys get a little overzealous, right? And then they yeah. run into a trial where they weren't quite ready. If you like, if you had just waited a little while longer for this evidence to come out, yeah, that's those are the heartbreaking cases. It's like they get tried, they get they get uh, proven innocent or whatever, and then something damning comes out, and you're like, mm -hmm. shit, we'd have just waited, you know, another six months or so before we tried this person. Yep. Uh, it would have been a no-brainer. I feel like there's a little bit of that to this one. Mm -hmm. at, at least in this can, in this case, with the military being involved, they were able to retry him. And yeah. let's not give away the whole case. Let's let's dive into this thing. Let's do it, man. Make sure you tuck them in tight Phone call tonight 
All right, our case this week, as we briefly mentioned, takes place in North Carolina. Um, I got a book for this case to get backstory on the characters involved because there's a lot about the murder and the subsequent trials, um, not a whole lot on the backstories of the people involved, the murder victims and the murderer. Right. Um, and for that information, I used a book called Innocent Victims, The True Story of the Eastburn Murders, uh, Eastburn Family Very Murders. Nice. Eastburn and Family Murders. I right. neglected to put down the author of that book. Hold, please. Well, there's also, there's also a uh, documentary on YouTube available um, if you guys want to check that out. Did you watch this? About uh, It was uh, done by 2020. It's I did a very not. good documentary. I did uh, it's I'm, about, I'm glad you did. Yeah. That way we get you know different takes on things. Yeah. Well, your your timeline, as usual, is, is, is far more thorough because of the background. And there's also a few, there's a few damning pieces of evidence you have in this timeline that were not mentioned in the documentary. Um, but I understand why, because the documentary was written in a way where it wants to take you on this roller coaster, right? Yeah. And if they, if Very they theatrical. implemented, yeah, yeah, they're trying to be theatrical. They're trying to hide some stuff until the end and whatnot. Yeah. But still, a very good watch and a very good summary of this case, I believe. Right on. Good to know. And the author of Innocent Victims is Scott Wisnant. Oh, okay, Scott um, Wisnant. Yeah. So it's on Audible. A uh, very good book. Highly recommend it. If you want more backstory and, and a little bit more detail into this case. Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about this case, mm-hmm. but they don't go into, a, you know, as much detail. Right. So you can always depend on a good book for that. Mm-hmm. All right. So Fort Bragg, we kind of mentioned, is the largest military base in the country. This case is attached to Fort Bragg on multiple fronts. Right. Um, the Eastburn family that is the focus of this case was a military family that lived in Fayetteville, North Carolina. The patriarch um, working at Fort Bragg. Um, but at the time of the murder, being a, at a different military base doing training, was away from the home. Uh, every father's or mother's worst nightmare, being away from the family and something terrible happening to them while you're gone. Yes. Um, this patriarch would be Gary Eastburn. He was a captain in the U.S. Air Force. And we'll go into a little backstory about him and his, uh, you know, meeting his wife. So when he was 25 years old, Gary met Catherine, uh, who goes by Katie Eastburn, in the 1970s. At the time, Katie was 20 years old and was actually engaged to her college boyfriend when Gary started macking on her. Uh, he, he, he ran into her, really took a liking to you know, uh, the way she looked, I suppose, and mm-hmm. ultimately invited her to his softball game. He was an avid softball player and sounds okay. like quite a beast, according to the book that I got uh, on the baseball field slash softball field, and would, would light up the scoreboard at softball. And um, she agreed to go to the softball game and... He just continued to win her over. At the time, her boyfriend slash uh, fiance was, I believe, away uh, at school, and yeah, they were kind of doing the long distance thing. And Gary, you know, she told Gary that she was engaged, and he just kind of kept sticking around. And uh, yeah. ultimately, Katie's boyfriend over the phone would give her an ultimatum: uh, ultimatum, either you, uh, either you pick me, or you pick this guy, Gary, you've been hanging out with on the side. And she basically hung up on him and from there on her and Gary would shortly after get uh get engaged the two of them would get engaged and um, they seemed like they were really in love man yeah yeah they really did it's like sometimes sometimes you just know it's like you're like oh oops I'm with the wrong person you know what's kind of funny is (laughs) I think that was similar to both of our stories right it was your wife was with someone when you met her and my wife was with someone when she met me and ultimately uh you know not that we were intentionally trying to persuade them away from those people, but it just kind of happened. It just happened. It was a connection that uh, that we couldn't deny. 
Yeah. You know, and I think hey, you want more backstory on that. There is a just a banter in the past where someone asked us how we met our wives and we've gone into all that on just the banter oh, on the five dollar yeah. Patreon tier. So that's the kind of info you can get over there if you're interested. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh not long after um uh, Katie would end up leaving her former fiance, uh her and Gary would get married in nineteen seventy five and they would subsequently have three children, Kara, Aaron, and Jana. So uh all three little girls and mm-hmm. eight, and at the time of this uh, tragic event, they would be aged five, three and 22 months. Mm. Um, a little bit more backstory on Katie. She was described as a devoted mother and loving wife as a child. Katie was the oldest of four children and was a straight arrow. She never got into trouble. She loved horses. Um, she managed solid grades and graduated in 1971. Um, mm. wow, and back- I can see that. Yeah. So back to leading up to this case in 1983, Gary's job supervisor, uh, supervising air traffic control in the air force brought their young family to North Carolina's Pope air force base near Fort Bragg, where he served as a chief air chief of air traffic control. So I may have bespoke. He didn't actually, I guess he didn't work for Fort Bragg, which is, is that's an army base. Right. And so he worked at a nearby air force base or does Fort Bragg have all of the different military? Is it that big that it's, I'm not sure how this stuff Uh, works. Yeah. I thought, Fort Bragg was also a military, uh, I mean, a uh, Air Force base, but I might be, I might be wrong. Maybe it's the Army base. Yeah. Oh, Pope uh, Air Force base. That was the base I was trying to remember before we started recording. Yeah. I told Mm -hmm. you there was another base out there. Yeah. Yeah. Pope Air Force base. Yeah. Very close. So Gary's working for Pope Air Force base near Fort Bragg, where he served as the the chief of an air traffic control um, room. And in May of 1985, Captain Eastburn, Gary, was undergoing training at a squadron's officer school in Montgomery, Alabama, with his wife and children remaining in Fayetteville when this terrible occurrence happens. Mm. Yes. Um, the Eastburn family was also planning to relocate to England soon so that Captain Eastburn could take up a liaison job with the Royal Air Force, um, which was his dream. He always wanted to be a part of the Royal Air Force in, in England. Oh, really? And he, yeah, and he, he worked towards it and finally got the opportunity, and they were planning to move to England very soon when this happened. And that actually kind of spawns the event. If it weren't for them moving there um, and the family choosing to, uh, you know, not choosing to, but having to right. um, rehome one of their animals, uh, this, this occurrence unfortunately never would have happened. We've talked about the, the, chance, incur- the, the chance encounters you have with people in life sometimes. We talked about uh, the murders that occurred um, mm-hmm. uh, up north, right below Canada, where the guy was selling selling a truck on uh, on Craigslist, and this scumbag oh, serial God, killer yes. came to look at the truck and ultimately killed the guy. Like that kind of right. stuff, buying and selling things. We've we've had these conversations. Yeah, unfortunately, it's the risk you take. Yeah, making those encounters, but yeah, this one was a deadly one. Yeah. So while uh, Gary was away in Montgomery, Alabama, doing his training, he would. He would still keep in touch with his family through nightly telephone calls. This was in the era before cell phones and email in the early to mid eighties here. So he, right. he, he, you know, did his landline calls to his wife every, every evening and she would put the kids on the phone and he would talk to them and, yeah. um, and all, all was good. All was good. They were planning, planning to move to England, you know, and everything was looking up. However, on May 11th, while he was over there, you know, May 11th, 1985, he made his nightly call, and Gary or Katie did not respond. Um, she didn't answer the routine phone call. He didn't think on it too hard. Uh, the next morning, he tried calling again, and that's when he started to become a little bit concerned, and he would actually contact their neighbor, Bob, 
who was a friendly guy and would, you know, have the kids come over and he would, you know, it's kind of the older guy that would right. have the neighbor kids over and give them treats and things like that. It not was in a, a different time. Way. It's a different time. People actually <laughs> knew their neighbors. Not in a creepy way. Like in, nowadays <laughs> right, you might right. assume that's a pedophile when you might be right half the time, but yeah, there are those but, just old, pe- nice people that, you know, just want to give a kid candy and it's, yeah, there's nothing behind it. They just miss their kids. It. They yeah. miss their kids. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, Gary calls the neighbor, Bob, and, you know, asks him if he'd seen anything out of the, out of the norm, uh, you know, across, you know, next door. Right. Um, and Bob actually had, had been keeping an eye on the house. You know, he'd, he'd noticed that, uh, there was newspapers piling up and the stroller, the kid's stroller was sitting on the porch and had just been sitting there for days. And mm. also the car was there. And so it was just kind of odd. He'd been talking to his wife, like, what do you, you know, what do you think? Maybe they rode the bus somewhere to go see to go see Gary, you know, the father right. of the house or what. And ultimately after receiving the call from, from Gary, he's now he's, he's concerned himself and he actually walks over, um, to the home. And when he, when he arrives, he, he rings the doorbell. There was no answer, but he could hear, he could hear what he thought was a baby crying inside the home. Yes. And, you know, upon further Thank inspection, God. walking around the home, he determined it definitely was a baby crying inside and told his wife to contact the sheriff's office. Um, and waited for them to arrive. When the police officer arrived at the Eastburn's home on Summerhill Road, he could hear the youngest daughter, Jana, screaming inside the house. She was just hours away from death from dehydration and starvation, and she was covered in dirt and feces. Gosh, um, three days, man. She'd been there alone in that crib. God, can you imagine the trauma? Not even two years old. Yeah, this yeah, this child was probably less than 24 hours from succumbing to the dehydration. I can't believe it took him that long to hear her screaming, you know? That's... yeah. Well, maybe they were larger properties. Yeah, could have been. Could have been a little more space between the houses for sure. Yeah. So the toddler, uh, sadly, would be the only one found in the house alive of the of the four people. Um, mm. And the baby Jana was passed through the window to Bob while the police officers continued to look around the house. Inside, the officer found the bodies of Katie, Aaron, and and Kara after smelling a strong odor, and called in called in the the coroner's. Um, and homicide detectives as well. Five-year-old Kara had been stabbed in the chest multiple times and was found curled up under a Star Wars blanket. 32-year-old Katie was found with her trousers and underwear on and had been raped. She'd also been stabbed 15 times. Three-year-old Aaron had Uh. received blunt force trauma to her chest and back, and all of their throats had been cut. So absolutely horrific, brutal, violent murders um, in this scenario. God, it's just the the girl that was found under the Star Wars blanket, man, is the most haunting thing in this whole case. Yeah. It's like, because you know, as a kid, you know how that feels, right? Where you think you see something in the corner and you pull the covers over your, over your head and you're like, okay, I'm safe in here. Like, they can't yeah. see me. I, I can't see them, you know? Yeah, so And so then horrible. the worst nightmare happened to her. Yeah, and it went beyond, uh, like, the, these killings went, went to, to the point of, like, almost rage like it was it was overkill like they 15 times one of them stabbed and i believe i don't remember which child but according to the book one of them was like nearly decapitated like it was well beyond just doing what it takes to kill a child it was far beyond that just an absolute monster did this and it sounds as though one of the older sisters told the baby to go hide when they realized you know that there was an intruder in the home that meant to do them harm and that's the only reason that that the baby survived she, yeah, they were able to get and some information quiet. out of her, right? Like yeah. even even being so young, a child psychologist was able to to get at least a few phrases out of her mm-hmm. to confirm yeah. what had happened. 
Yeah, so we'll go more into that in a second. Investigators frantically gathered evidence and scoured the neighborhood for anyone who might have seen something. Desperate, the police even turned to baby Jana, the only survivor, to see if there were clues she could offer. Baby Jana told the child psychologist to hide because the bad men were coming. So she still believed they were coming after her oh, um, yeah. and anyone involved. Um, and the, the child psychologist believed that her sisters had told her to stay hidden, which is why she survived the attack unharmed. Well, I, it could have been that or it could have just been he knew that she was, wasn't going to be a witness. I mean, she can't even speak. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like even as as horrible as this monster is to do this, maybe they rationalized, well, I really don't need to take her life. Like the three-year-old, yeah. the three-year-old can talk, you know, the five-year-old can talk. They can point people mm -hmm. out. Um, but the, the, the baby. That's definitely a possibility. Yeah. And, and it's possible that he didn't even go in the room with the baby. Yeah. So. So, um, yeah, they brought in this child psychologist named Helen Brantley to question Jana and show her pictures of her family and police photo lineups. According to her summary report, Brantley was not certain that Jana had seen what had happened that night, but clearly heard things. Still, it was uh, it was nothing that could con conclusively help the investigation. So right. the, the killer would have been correct in that, you know, the baby wasn't able to really provide a description of who he was, what he looked like, those sort of things. Exactly. Um, forensics were taken from the crime scene and there was plenty of it, including hair, fingerprints, and even semen samples taken from, um, the mother. But unfortunately it's 1985 and none of that really matters. <laughs> it, it matters in that they, they, they were able to store it and <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, eventually later test it. But yeah, at the time they were not able to match the semen to a, a, a suspect. So, nope. um, luminol tests showed that a lot of blood had been cleaned up recently. Uh, Gary Eastburn was contacted soon after by Detective Jack Watts, and he knew. Man, this this part of the book was crazy because the father just knew. He knew his family so well. He knew his wife so well that she, the fact that she hadn't contacted him already yep. made him extremely concerned. And and knowing that he was away and they were vulnerable, and when he gets a call to his military base and it's yep. a detective, when he answers, you know, this is detective, blah blah blah. His first quote was to the detective was, "How many of my family are dead?" Yep, he knew. He knew. Um, and, uh, so the detective Jack Watts told him to come home immediately as there'd been a death in the family. He gave the detective once he, once he got there, uh, Robert Biddle, all the information he could and told him that he had, a, the family had a dog. This would end up tying everything together. This dog, yeah. believe it or not. Um, so they had a dog and he knew his wife had put an advertisement in the paper for someone to adopt the dog as they didn't think the dog could cope with the journey to England, um, or the quarantine involved. Right. So this is obviously pre-COVID, but quarantine is still a thing back then <laughs> right. uh, for dogs if they're traveling well, overseas. It's before you, I was about to say, yeah, it's just before you travel. Uh, animals have to be quarantined for so long or whatever. Mm -hmm. So their dog was named uh, Dixie, which is kind of interesting because I actually have a cat named Dixie. <laughs> it's a good pet name. It really is. Yeah. Um, Katie had made arrangements to rehouse the family's English setter named Dixie before the trip, posting an advertisement in the local newspaper and shortly after finding, it, finding a new home for the pup only a few days before the murders. We'll go into that exchange mm -hmm. in a bit. Um, he didn't have any information, Gary didn't, about the new owner of the dog. Um, he just knew that someone had come, you know, responded right. to the ad in the advertisement, uh, and this person came and bought the dog, and he didn't know much more than that. Right. They were probably just glad that they were able to rehome him so fast. I have a feeling he would have gotten more information about that had the killer not struck so quickly. Because, I, I, you know, he had that daily call with his wife. I think that would have been something that came up like, yeah, this nice guy came and exactly. bought Dixie. 
I think it's a good home. I'm sure that would have been talked about. Maybe even the guy's name would have been told by his wife to him. I don't know. Yeah, that might be true. And also, I was just thinking that, you know, maybe she spilt a little extra information to this person as well. Maybe saying something like her husband was away. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? He's in the military and, you know, she calls him every every night to check up or whatever. She could have she could have relayed some of that information to this person, and then that could have, you know, sent up a red flag to to them. Well, okay, I need to do this sooner, right? If I'm going to do it, yeah, yeah, not knowing exactly when the husband's going to return, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So upon arriving back to his hometown, uh, Gary would walk around his house where the, the violent murders had taken place, um, and he was looking for anything that was missing. He would find that Katie's bank card, an envelope containing around $300, and the password for the bank card appeared to be the only items missing from the home. So also a robbery um, taking place. Yes. Um, Yes. Then suddenly, the police get an unexpected witness that comes to them, uh, a young man named Patrick Cohn, who had had a bit of a reputation. Um, Mm -hmm. He, against his his own instincts, would come forward just think, feeling that something was not right about something he had seen that night in front of the home where these violent murders taken, had taken place. Yeah, He told them that he had seen a man in a members-only jacket at around 3.30 a.m. that morning. The man was white, blonde, and tall with a wide nose and mustache. He wore a knitted cap and jeans and was walking away from the Eastburn's house carrying a bin bag. Ooh. And the man, uh, and, and Patrick said that the man spoke to him stating, quote, leaving a little early this a.m., uh, this morning. As he walked uh, towards his car, a white Chevette. So this this uh, witness gives mm-hmm. a detailed description of the man and the car he's driving. Really helped out this investigation. Um, and this Patrick Cohn person was he was a, a young black man who liked the nightlife. He he was known to you know walk around town throughout night drinking. Right. And that's why he was a little bit reluctant to come forward because he didn't want to be the one having the you know bringing yourself into this Naturally. investigation. Just. You know, there's a decent chance that you end up having the the sights turned on you. And yeah, that's that's what I thought when he first came forward in the documentary. I was like, uh oh, they're gonna be investigating him more than the damn the guy right. that he's trying to, <laughs> he's yeah. trying to tell on. Yeah, yeah, but the police would be able to connect, you know, his description of this person and yes. what's driving and stuff. He to gave a the, great description to the person who came and bought the dog. What they know about that person, mm-hmm. so. Patrick would would even sit down with a sketch artist and uh, from the North Carolina Division of the Bureau of Investigation to create an image of the man he'd seen that morning. Um, meanwhile, the Eastburn's babysitter also spoke to the police and told them that Katie had thought that uh, she had a stalker. The family had received crank calls for months before the murders, and sometimes the caller spoke about doing sexual things to Katie. Now, see, this is something that wasn't in the documentary. This was news. That to is me. odd, right? Yeah, that's. Now I wonder how do you if not it's possible that. I wonder if it's possible that this killer saw the ad, connected it to a person, you know, this woman that he had been stalking, and saw it as his opportunity to to get closer and oh my feel God. out the situation. It's possible, you know. It's very possible that he the didn't stalker even... thing is weird because that doesn't really fit the crime itself. It doesn't, or, right? You know, the motive of it and all that. Oh, he could have been. He could have been stalking her mm-hmm. anyways, and just thought, well, shit, this is yeah, this is a great opportunity. To not look suspicious, he's not approaching her on his own accord. Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah, that that would have been lucky though. At the same time, that would have kind of right. fell into his lap. I don't know. Yeah. A few days before the murder, the babysitter picked up the East uh, the Eastburn's phone and took took a call from a woman named Angela. This Angela person was interested in looking at the dog, and the babysitter to- took her details so Katie could call her back. Unfortunately, that note uh, that the babysitter had left was not found in the home. 
uh, when the search was done. Maybe the killer removing that note and that connection to himself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. However, definitely six days idea. later, six days later, Angela Hennis and her husband Tim were watching the news and saw a report on the murders. And Tim's wife, Angela, sees that uh, there's a lot of things about the description of this killer that match up to her, her old husband there. And she knows that the victims in this scenario uh, were the same people that they had just bought this dog from. Uh-huh. They realized quickly that the new addition to their home, an old red set, setter named Dixie, had been picked up from the very same house only days before. And the white Chevette sitting in the driveway was the car the police were looking for. So she knew quickly that her husband was the person that the police wanted to talk to. Yep. Tim Hennis, you know, playing it cool, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, he goes, all right, I'll go down and talk to him. He was the man that yeah, had responded to the ad and, and drove to the, he drives himself to the police station to speak with Detective Watts and Biddle about his encounter with the family. When Watts walked into the uh, interview room, he immediately saw the likeness to the sketch that Patrick Cohn had helped to create. So this man also yeah. matches the sketch of the suspicious character that was seen leaving the home. I agree. Evening. It's hard. It's really hard to deny it when you see that sketch and him together. You're like, yeah. I don't know if he did it, but uh, he was there. He's the yep. guy he saw. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Now, a little more background on Tim. Tim was a 27-year-old Army sergeant, so also in the military, and had recently become a father earlier that year. Tim was the f- mm. uh, first of three children adopted by his parents. His father, Bob, worked for IBM for 32 years, and the family was well off. So young Tim Hennis gets adopted by this family, and has quite an idyllic life. He gets two siblings that were also adopted by, uh, by this family. Oh, okay. And the Hennis ke- kids were never really in, in need of anything or never really wanted anything that they didn't get growing up. They also learned how to track, hunt, and fish from their father on many camping trips that they went on growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a young age, Tim was very terrible with money. Um, he was working two jobs as a teen, but still managed to pass, uh, or try, try to pass bouncing checks all over town. So you see this often, right? With, with kids who are, who grow up in really comfortable households, they have a certain lifestyle that they think they need to keep up because it's what they're used to. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when they're not, they're not, they don't have access to mom and daddy's bank account anymore. And you, <laughs> yeah. and you're like only 27 in the military, you're probably not making crazy money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, when uh, Tim was younger, his adopted father learned not to spank him specifically more than a couple times. He did it because it was it just the way that he responded to it uh, was just so he was so devastated by it. Apparently, he was a, an extremely sensitive boy. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Later, Tim think- Hennis would join the army as an adult, transferring from Fort Benning t- in Georgia to Fort Bragg. Um, there was a tragedy in the family when his uh, his younger brother, Andy, was killed in a motorcycle accident. His younger brother was like the, the golden child of the three adopted children. Okay. Um, they just, the family adored him, and he was on his way to move to Florida when his parents had moved to Florida uh, to retire. Andy was on his way down there on his motorcycle, was sitting in a light, and was rear-ended and pushed into another lane where a semi killed him. Jesus. Yeah. This is all detail that you don't find elsewhere, but was in that book. Again, yeah, not in the documentary. Definitely not that, no. Yeah, and this apparently obviously devastated the family, but it also uh, was devastating to Tim as well, who apparently punched a hole through a wall when he he discovered what had happened. Oh, wow. And this is all leading up. This is around the same time that all this stuff goes on. Soon he, uh, Tim, would uh, marry a, a young woman named Angela, and a couple of years later they would have a daughter together named Christina, and this was in February of 1985, which is shocking because just a few short months later 
you know, we, mm-hmm. we would come to find out that he would commit these horrific murders, having just become a father of a little girl. I don't Pretty understand it. I, don't I mean, I know it's like maybe he was just under a shit ton of stress. I don't, I don't know. But and then also, when you think of a a murder in a crime scene this brutal, you're like, he just did one. He just did one murder like this. Yeah, maybe we'll never know. You know, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's terrifying. This. But there's of, always there always has to be a first one, right? I mean, every serial killer started somewhere, so maybe this I was guess, just his first well, one. And yeah, th- they. He was start at that like, age where it's kind of like that peak, starting to get into serial killing age, like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, but such a brutal killing, dude, and a rape too. It is, and then it is hard to believe that you would and start then you out cleaned that up violent, right? Every and then you cleaned up blood and shit, and and took evidence. I don't know, man. Yeah, definitely acted Something. as though he was an experienced criminal. Yeah, he did. So the police would interview Tim as he was a, uh, as if he was a suspect, and Tim was rightfully weary of them. He asked if he needed representation, and the police told him it was just a routine interview. <laughs> that, seems... <laughs> that means, yes, you need representation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, I'm surprised they were even able to get away with saying that. Right. Um, he told them that he wanted to pick up the dog on tu- He went to pick up the dog on Tuesday, two days before the murders took place, and after that, he had taken his daughter and wife to visit family, and they'd stayed behind, which meant he didn't have an alibi for the night, of, the night in question. Ooh. Um, so he, he was basically home alone. Yep. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. He did, however, let the detectives take fingerprints, saliva, hair, and blood samples while they were waiting to collect what they needed from him. They were also creating a lineup for Patrick, the you know the uh, witness that had seen the That's killer right. that night. Um, the police knew that Tim had bounced some bad checks in the past, and and they had a photo of him when he was arrested. They placed it between five images of other men, and Patrick immediately picked him out. So now they had the witness selecting out of the lineup, and they're starting mm-hmm. to build a strong case here now. Yep. Uh, Tim was released after several hours of questioning, and he drove home. Police knew they had found their main suspect and began interviewing the people around him. Tim's neighbors had seen him burning items in a barrel outside of his home, and he'd stood there for five oh. hours tending to the fire. They'd never seen him burn anything in a barrel and found this behavior. This is so common. Uh, how many times uh, have we done a case where it's like yeah all of a sudden my neighbor who never has fires in the backyard was having you know this this long bonfire yep 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 and see another thing not in the documentary see they couldn't put this in there this is one of those things that i was saying earlier that it would it would just it would close the case for you almost it would just yeah yeah it would spoil it right it spilled the beans yeah yeah Tim's local dry cleaner also came forward and told police that Tim had come in the day after the murders to have his jacket cleaned, and it was a members-only jacket. I mean, granted, there's a lot of dudes walking around with members-only jackets in the mid-'80s. True that. True that. Almost but... really what you should wear if you were killing someone in the mid-'80s to just kind of yeah. make yourself <laughs> right. as conspicuous as possible. Right. You blend in so well. But right. not everybody's And I am theirs. also allowed to be here at the site of this murder because I am a member-only, so. Ah, ah, yes. Yes, the entitlement's jacket. So when questioned, Tim's landlord told police that Tim was late with his rent that month, but uh, his tenant owed owed over $345 and somehow managed to come up and pay the rent a few days later just after the murders. And wasn't $300 cash stolen from the murders? Yep. And the bank card as well. That's crazy coincidence. Yep. Hmm. So with all of this circumstantial evidence mounting, Tim would be arrested and charged with rape and the three murders in the first degree and was offered a plea deal immediately but refused to take it. Uh, Not I don't know, man. It's like 
I guess but he just maybe he he didn't want to his you know admit that he had done this because he's still holding out hope that his wife and his family are going to believe him. He does have a powerful father that comes to his defense right away and and hires good lawyers. Right. Um. So Tim didn't want to plead guilty because he told them he didn't do it. Instead, he told police to test uh, to test the samples he'd given them in his first interview. The blood types, fingerprints, and hair were tested, but it was the mid-80s, and forensics uh, still had a ways to go. The blood came back as inconclusive because there was so much of it. Uh, the fingerprints and hair weren't a match uh, and were also inconclusive. Damn. However, a lot of other evidence had uh, mounted against the sergeant, and now a new uh, witness would appear. Katie's Uh-oh. bank card, as we mentioned, had been stolen during the murders, and the killer had also acquired the you know, banking code. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to use the card and it had been used to withdraw money after her death and a woman happened to be behind the killer at the ATM machine just a few days after the attacks and the person before her had used Katie's, uh, Katie Eastburn's bank card and she was sure that the man when the police came to her and asked you know what this person looked like she said that the man was blonde uh, wearing camouflage trousers and when they showed you know did a photo lineup she picked out Tim Hennis so now they have another oh. positive identification yeah, that's some damning circumstantial evidence right there. Yeah. If they have the timestamp on the card, you know I mean? You can't argue with a damn ATM. And then yep. you see when her card was inserted. I think they were like three minutes apart, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So. Yep. That, good yeah. on her. Good on her to remember this. You know, it's a good thing that know, uh, right? smartphones didn't exist because she'd probably be sitting there scrolling TikTok or something and not paying attention to who was in front of her. Oh, I know. Although, still to this day, I pay attention to who's around me at ATMs. Oh, you have to, right? Yeah, I pay way. attention to, to who's there before me, if there's someone standing behind me, is there someone yeah. within, you know, walking, running distance of me. Like, It's I'm just a weird situation. Everybody. It's really yeah. amazing that there's not constantly attacks at, at, at ATMs, because it's just like, we know what's yep. going on here. You're walking up to this thing and walking away with money, like, <laughs> more often than I know, not. Right? Most people don't do deposits. They're getting cash out, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Well, either way, they're moving cash, yeah. whether they're depositing it or not, you know. But I, I guess most people nowadays, we know how much surveillance there is around them, and it's pretty risky, I guess. But unless you're completely covered up, head to toe, and make Which it ain't hard. hard. Yeah, hard to, de- yeah. to determine who you are, but. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So even though none of the evidence found in the house could be linked to Tim, uh, the prosecution still wanted to move forward with the trial. And so Tim would go to trial almost a year after the murders where the jury was shown a slideshow of the crime scene and autopsy photographs with the prosecutor prosecutor's presentation lasting 90 minutes. And I can only imagine for the average mm. person getting called to jury duty to see the, from what I've heard described this. in this book, how graphic and horrific these people, you know, these, these poor children and this mother were killed. I, I think it was too much for them to show those photos to the, to the jury, man. Like the, the impact it must, I'm sure for 90 some of minutes. them probably have PTSD from it. it yeah. It had to have been horrible images they were looking at. Yeah. For an hour and a half, man. That's yeah. insane. And we would come to find out that that was a bad idea later, and we'd be part of the appeal process was the the fact that the jury was shown those photos. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the physical evidence matched Tim Hennis, and the tactics used by the prosecution were questionable in the first trial. Nevertheless, when the jury returned from their deliberation, they found Tim Hennis guilty of three first-degree murders and the rape of Katie. So initially wow. found guilty. Um, and he would be transferred to Raleigh. Is that how you say it? Raleigh. Raleigh, sorry. Uh, he would be transferred to Raleigh, and three days after the trial, he would be sentenced to death. Mm. I mean, rightfully so. I mean, if there's a, that, if there's ever yeah. a, a death penalty case, it's 
you know, brutally murdering a family and children. I mean, that's it's, about as bad as it gets. Absolutely. But it, it's so crazy because the documentary left out so much shit that you have already mentioned that when it got to this point, you were like, what? They can't convict him. Like, right. that's literally how I was oh, yeah, first time watching do, right? it. Yeah. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And I'm just, I'm just saying that's how much they left out to where I was like, I don't think he's guilty. I mean, damn, nothing tied him to this at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. I started to think like, God, man, maybe he's just driving the wrong car or maybe he was in the neighborhood, but he just, he didn't do it. You know, right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he even bought the dog and still didn't do it. Y- yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So despite the verdict, there were still questions surrounding the case, rightfully so. I mean, they didn't have any physical evidence linking him, which is pretty shocking considering how much physical it, evidence there was. Granted, it's the early days of DNA analysis yeah. and all that. Like they really can't do a whole lot with that stuff. But the fingerprint thing, like, didn't they find fingerprints at the scene, and then they ha- they are able to get his fingerprints at this point? Obviously, but they were still weren't able to link those. I know, right? Maybe the, maybe the fingerprints were of the family or of a neighbor or something or something, yeah. or maybe the crime this scene guy, was contaminated. Thinking about how much he covered up what he did, getting rid of all that blood. I mean, they know they yeah. found with luminol how much blood there was, but he had cleaned all that up. So you have to think he was probably wearing gloves for this whole thing. I, I can't imagine he wasn't. Oh yeah, yeah. He he was he was pretty smart, and and I doubt he bled either. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't. I just can't see unless the mother somehow was able to get the upper hand and cut him somehow or scratch him. Yeah, I doubt you would even find his blood. Yeah, I mean, but obviously there was a rape, but DNA wasn't at that point yet. Unfortunately, yeah. So so there were fingerprints and hair all over the Eastburns house that didn't match Tim Hennis and there were also footprints found outside the Eastburns home that were three sizes smaller than Tim's feet none of these pieces of evidence were ever questioned during during the trial however while his appeal was being prepared Tim received uh, also t- this this kind of throws another wrench in the situation Tim receives doesn't a strange it? letter in prison that says dear Mr. Hennis I did the crime I murdered the Eastburns sorry you're doing the time I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this thanks Mr. X mm-hmm. um, okay. the sheriff's office would also receive a letter from the unknown writer with the same message in it um, but many thought that the letter was a hoax and had been done either by Tim or by someone connected to Tim yeah yeah probably because yeah. why would they send one to the sheriff's office to the exact same thing Right. You know what I mean? I could see, like, if the guy did it, rubbing it in the face of the person who got it, who got mm-hmm. arrested for it. Okay, sure. But, yeah. I've it, always it, thought it that shoe thing, that shoe thing, though, you know, the shoes, shoe size being three times smaller than uh, Tim's. That been, I've always that thought been, that would be, like, a, you know, a, a really intelligent way to uh, try to disguise yourself in a crime, like, just cram your feet into really small shoes. Oh, Yeah. You know, hmm. and get like an odd, odd yeah. uh, brand of shoes that you don't normally wear, and they're yeah, way small from like a thrift shop or something like that. And then that's what OJ afterwards. did with his gloves, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just yeah. bought those small gloves. Yeah. No, no, it's because they made him wear that liner underneath his hand. I swear to God, when he's trying on that glove, you know. Oh, you're going into OJ now? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I'm just saying, it just made me think of when you're talking about. Oh, that's a good way to <laughs> just right. I was like. I mean, shit, it, it worked for OJ, something as simple as a glove. Right. They probably so. pumped him full of sodium, so he's a little bit swollen, too. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> right, made sure his hands were nice and warm. Right. Fucking swollen. Yeah. <clears throat> made him do, like, concrete work the day before. We'll have some fun with that OJ case whenever we cover it. <laughs> for sure. Um, so in 1988, Tim Hennis' appeal was finally ready to go back to court. 
and their defense was that the photograph slideshow presented to the jury was completely discriminatory against their client. I mean, I don't know how to feel about that stuff because you do need to know the gravity of the situation if you're on the jury. You need yeah. to know how horrific these murders were to yeah. to kind of understand. But at the same time, like the average person just can't handle seeing something like that. They're like, you know, people just walking through life, you know, in their you know, maybe they watch rom coms and they don't they're not in the true crime community like we are and kind of are accustomed to seeing this. The average Joe just out of nowhere seeing a murder like a family that's a child that's nearly beheaded like i can only yeah. imagine that you know what yeah. that would do to your psyche especially in 1985 like this yeah, stuff was man, nowhere this near the and yeah faces of death and like a lot mm -hmm. well maybe faces of death existed but that was like very fringe vhs tapes that you'd get acquire from some sh you know shifty buddy of yours or something i the average person wasn't watching that right absolutely not um, the images of the brutal murders and autopsy scenes they believed were too much and that the jury would have convicted anyone for the crimes. The judge agreed that the jury saw too many images, so Tim was given a new trial and it was moved 90 miles away for a fair hearing. That same year, the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court ruled that the photographic presentation, presentation should be limited to not cause prejudice among jurors, uh, named the, the Hennis test for, for excess. So he actually got his own kind of like oh. new new law within uh, trials. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so the, the initial witness, Patrick Cohn, would be put on the stand first in the new trial. The, the defense had planned to discredit the witness inaccurate uh, account of the night he saw the tall blonde man in the white Chevette. They brought a meteorologist in and a helicopter pilot. My God, the defense really went all out. And like I said, right. Tim Hennis's father, Bob, has a lot of money and a lot of influence. He'd been around a long time and had you know climbed near the top of IBM, yeah. and he had a lot of resources, and I'm sure that helped in this appeal process. Oh, absolutely! Uh, and where they had the money to bring in a meteorologist, a meteorologist, and a helicopter pilot, and those those uh, expert witnesses told the jury that the night was very overcast and dark, and Patrick would have found it difficult to see the man properly, as if there's not oh, like wow. street lights and things like that in 1985. You know, like right. Oh, Come some on. clouds. Therefore, you could not have seen anything. What are you talking about? Sometimes the <laughs> dude, honestly, is it? Am I tripping? Or is overcast nights the nights where you can see the best at night? Where it's kind of like it glows. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, dep it depends on the moon, right? If it's like a full moon and it's overcast, that moon's just going to light up the clouds, and it's yeah, just going to be a nice, a nice even light over mm -hmm. everything. I feel like. Agree, hundred percent. They're they're like you said. They're, they're grasping for straws here. They're, they're throwing money around. They're doing whatever they can to put doubt and that's all they have to do is put place doubt yeah well patrick had been in uh patrick Cohn, we mentioned had been in trouble with the law uh, between the two trials even telling an officer that he was too valuable to lock up because he was a witness at the head at the hennis trial <laughs> um so they're discrediting the hell out of this witness which is a huge piece of this you know case right um and enough doubt was thrown upon patrick's reliability for the jury to, to believe uh, to disbelieve his account and so you you know you throw that out and you have a much a weaker case against yep. the suspect here. Absolutely. Um, now you're down to one witness too. Yeah. Yeah. Then they brought in the woman from the ATM machine, the other witness. And I mean, mm -hmm. this is still her, you know, her account was already kind of is what it is. It's like, Oh, I stood behind a blonde guy at an ATM. There's not a whole lot of weight to it to begin with. Well, he's also wearing uh camos though. So that mm -hmm. would signify that he's in the military as well. Good point. And, and he's six, four, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. Yeah. He's a pretty he's a pretty towering figure, I would say. Pretty easy right. to remember too. 
Yeah. That being said, a lot of tall guys in the military around Fort Bragg and around mm-hmm. this part of part of the country. So I'm sure. I'm sure. By the by the time the police had found her, Tim Hennis had been on television and in newspapers, and she could have easily picked upon uh, picked up on his face from seeing these reports. The defense also made the jury sit in silence for three and a half minutes to highlight the amount of time between the man's transaction at the ATM and her own. Mm. Interesting way to do things, for sure. That's a long time. That is a long yeah. time for an ATM transaction, which legitimately maybe he walked up, it took him 30 seconds, and then there's three minutes before she inserts her card. That's that's a long time. Like He easily could have already been gone, or she could have been sitting in her car, and he walked away, and she was far away from him. Oh, so from the time he finished, there was three minutes. Well, from the time that he put in his card, right, to the time she oh. put in her card, three and a half minutes. Okay, well, that could have been him fumbling around with the, the you know what I'm saying, like with the, the passcode, the commands. He had her passcode written down. Maybe he's he's got to get it out of his wallet, and I don't know. Yeah. Man, this is all <laughs> speculation, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. But that is a long time for an ATM transaction, for sure, three and a half minutes. No doubt. When I'm you really sit there and, and like wait out three and a half minutes. <laughs> I think the average transaction's somewhere around one minute maybe yeah yeah if then again this isn't doing. his bank account he doesn't know what's in it maybe exactly. he is exploring That's what what's I'm in each to. account how much to take out yeah maybe there was limits on the account maybe he mm-hmm. tried for some crazy a limit and got denied and he's like oh mm-hmm. shit okay well let me just go down to this yeah you know that's what that's what i i mean that's common sense if, if you're a criminal like you already killed these people right so you're robbing them now mm-hmm. and naturally what you're going to try to take as much money as you can but yeah. a lot of a lot of accounts and especially debit cards they'll have a limit on how much you can get from the ATM. So maybe a few times he kept typing mm. in limits that were above, you know, what he could get. Yeah. So he had to keep going back through the process. Yep. That would I've been there. Minutes. I was recently there where I was trying to take out a certain number out of the ATM and it wasn't allowing me to. I so I kept like lowering it a little bit and trying again until I until yeah. <laughs> I realized what the limit is <laughs> instead of yeah. looking it up on you know right on your app. Yeah. <laughs> but he obviously couldn't do that in 1985. Exactly. So. Exactly. Um, Tim Hennis's lawyers also stressed that the woman at the ATM had told investigators, quote, I don't remember anything before ensuring that her story was in place before the first trial. The evidence found at the Eastburn's home was also brought up. So they've discredited the two witnesses and now they're working on the evidence. Um, who did the hair, blood and footprints belong to? They certainly weren't Tim's. The burn... The burn barrel remains of Tim's home were also collected and tested, as uh, and nothing of ev- significance was found in the burn pit either. And I mean, yeah. he's not burning human remains; he's burning the clothing yeah. or whatever that he was probably. I mean, that's my guess is he was burning the clothing he was wearing that night. And like, if you burned yep. it for hours, like the neighbor says, what are you going to find in that? Nothing. Yeah, yeah, because he had he had their blood and whatnot on his clothing, but like you say, that's that's burnt, so mm-hmm. that's that's done. You're not going to find remains of human blood. In a burn right. barrel. Or bones or something like that. Yeah, yeah, or bones. He didn't take the bodies. Right. Or, you know, he's not burning the, the murder weapon either. I'm sure he's not burning the knife. That's really the, the piece of evidence they needed most. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which I'm sure he ditched somewhere um, mm-hmm. to never be found. The defense spoke to the dry cleaner, and they told the lawyers that they didn't use any special blood cleaning chemicals on the members-only jacket. To prove their point, the defense poured blood on another jacket and cleaned it with chemicals to remove the blood from the fabric. Hmm. Um, Even with the right chemicals, a luminol test showed remains of blood on the prop jacket, and when Tim's jacket was given the same treatment, the luminol test didn't show any signs of blood at all. So now they're discrediting the jacket that supposedly the killer was wearing that night. You know, knowing that Tim Tim had a members-only jacket, they acquired that, and no blood was ever found. Uh, no traces of blood or anything was found on it, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, that's 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 pretty good. But they again, could have had 
they could have had, had several members cleaned. only jackets. <laughs> That's true. And he could have also had had it cleaned, you know, multiple times. Yeah. But also, like, if you commit a crime like this, I know it's a nice jacket, and I know it's in style in 1985. I know it's I know it's nice, but wouldn't you just burn that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, see, I can't imagine he would have kept the original one. Maybe he got another one afterwards. See, that would be brilliant, right? So you yeah. you 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 burn the one that you committed the murders in, then you take a different one to the dry cleaners. You use the money you case. stole from the victims to buy another one. But yeah, and then yeah, and you take it to the dry cleaners just to so people. I don't know. It just gets it just. It muddles up this that whole fucking thing. That is some 3D chess, for sure, if you do yes, that. Yes, this, this dude is playing some crazy I'm shit. I'm just saying, like, like this is speculation once again. Like, we're, we're definitely looking at this from the side of him being guilty because we know the outcome of this later with the DNA testing and whatnot, so that's why we're doing this. But otherwise, had that you know had the results much later come out, like there, there's definitely a lot to the appeal here. I mean, there's a lot of like yes. baked-in kind I, of like assumptions made during the I, original I, trial. I, I see why he, he gets acquitted in this second one. I get yeah, it. I do. Especially with as good of a defense as he was able to mount with the money Seriously. from his father. Absolutely. Um, so the final blow to, from the defense was a new witness who was a spitting image of Tim Hennis, John Rapow, who lived several streets away from the Eastburn's home and linked uh, and liked to walk around at night when he couldn't sleep. He was doing so on the night of the Eastburn's murders, wearing a members-only jacket and a knitted hat. Oh, shit. So another tall guy that wears the same kind of stuff. Walking yeah. around at night in the same neighborhood easily could have been the man that um, Patrick Cohn had seen. Yeah. Wow, but he don't have a white Chevette, though. Right. That's kind of damning. Does he like to walk around carrying, a, what was it, a crate or whatever that, uh, that Patrick Cohn said he was carrying? Oh, he said a bin bag. I'm guessing it's like one of those real big you know, army bags that are shaped oh, okay. like a big cylinder. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those. Yeah, that would be odd for him to be walking around the neighborhood unless he was like training. Like carrying yeah, no weights doubt. in it or something. Yeah, like it was John Rupa in the military? Because if so, yeah, okay, maybe. So John told the jury that the police had interviewed him, and when they released how smart, uh, how similar he looked to the suspect, they took his jacket and hit and hat and hid the uh, hid the evidence from the defense and only gave it back to them when Tim was safely in prison. A little sneakiness mm-hmm. there on the mm-hmm. part of the prosecution. Um, mm-hmm. Two days later, the jury would come back with a not guilty verdict for the thir- for the three first degree murders and the rape. So he goes from potentially looking at the death penalty to now being set free to the world wow. on appeal. Tim Hennis left the court with his daughter, who was now four years old, and his wife. He was a free man. Where he then would go on to rejoin the army, receiving back pay for the years he'd spent in prison. And in 1990, he was sent to Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield. He returned home after a stint in Somalia where he received medals for his duty and service. What a turnaround for his life from being convicted of, uh, you know, multiple horrific murders to Uh now he's a, you know, decorated war veteran here. It's crazy. He went right back to the military, huh? Yeah. Then in 2004, so we got some years go by, you know, he's out of prison, living his life. 14 years later, here we go. Traveling the world with the military, receiving medals. Um, in 2004, he would retire as a master sergeant and settled in a job at a waste facility in Washington. The family had moved there three years earlier, and Tim was now fi- filling his time as the leader of his son's scout group. Wow. So just All the way in Washington State, right? He moved to Washington State. Yeah. Not Washington, D.C. Wow, no. what a move, man. Mm-hmm. Went from Fort Bragg to Seattle. Like, what are you running from? Well, we mentioned, uh, you know, in his backstory as a child, his adopted father, uh, you know, took the took his children to the woods they camped a lot growing up tim did and his father was obsessed with uh 
you know, being like a survivalist and like taught them how to hunt and fish and all this stuff. And so it kind of uh-huh. makes sense that he would move to a really woodsy area as he retires, gets older and, and work with children doing kind of the same thing his adopted oh. father taught him. I mean, kind I guess, but there's, there's plenty of places to hunt and fish in North Carolina. True that. I mean, true that. Shit, but maybe he just go, wanted to get the hell away from that whole weekend. situation. Exactly. <laughs> That's because he saying. knew DNA had advanced, my friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> Probably a smart fucking move. I honestly would have moved to a different country if I were him. I know, right? Because you, know, you, you, you know you're going to get that knock like uh, the, the the good old Golden State killer got. You know, you're going to get right. that knock at the door eventually when they when they get around to deciding to test that DNA against you. Yep. Yes, sir. Um, so Tim continued to live a normal life with his loving family for years, but it would soon be turned upside down once more. When in 2006, Gary Eastburn received a call from Detective Biddle, that call that he, I'm sure, was dreading, that he, he knew he might get someday. Yep. Technology had finally caught up, and the rape kit used on Katie had been found at the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department and was sent to a crime lab where the DNA swabs from Katie were tested. The semen found inside Katie's body was a match to Tim Hennis. Dun, Not da-da. the neighbor walking through the, the neighborhood with the members-only jacket. Nope. Tim uh, Hennis. Nobody but Tim Hennis. So yep. the problem, the problem, the only problem that the prosecution was now facing, uh, you know, was double jeopardy. That law that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, we covered a whole series of cases surrounding double jeopardy. Um, and as we know, Tim had already been tried twice for the murder of Katie, found guilty initially, but then upon appeal, having a new trial, was acquitted. Mm-hmm. And as we know, you can't be tried twice for the same crime that you're acquitted of. Right. Unless. However, if you were in the military... They can use that loophole. The army called Tim back to active duty and he was charged with, so he's actually out of the military at this point. And they called him back to active, active duty just so that they could go after him for these murders. Um, That's insane. Yeah. So he was once again, charged with the three murders of the Eastburns. And on the 17th of March, 2010, the trial for Tim Hedis began in the Fort Bragg courthouse. So now he's getting tried in a, in a military court. So you can be called back to active duty after you retire, like with, with no choice. Or did he have to, it, did they like propose it and like they just offered him a certain amount of money and he was like, okay, yeah, I'll go back into active duty. Uh, like, I think they can do whatever they want in the military. And like they, once you sign up for the military, you're kind of their property almost forever. Like it's. Now that I didn't know. I didn't well, know especially I think just, if you're receiving it, probably because he was receiving a pension from them. You know what I mean? Like he's still attached to them. They're still paying him money. Yeah. It's different uh, than if like you got, you got in and then you were dishonorably discharged and like, you don't, I think that'd be a little bit different, but the fact that he's, I don't know. I think they could call you back if you're still receiving a pension from them. There's probably stipulations to that pension. Like unless you are convicted of a, you know, a murder or whatever, like mm -hmm. then they can call you back and try you. They can do whatever they want to do the military and the, the government. That's just, that's just interesting. I never heard of anybody like being called back to active duty after they were retired, especially honorably discharged, and he was a war veteran. Yeah. Interesting. So now in his 50s, Tim sat through another trial as he had done twice before where the defense pulled out the same evidence as the second trial, the shoe prints, the blood, the fingerprints, and the hair. But the luminol test done at the crime scene showed an extensive cleanup, which had been done after the murder, and, and the one piece of evidence that Tim couldn't get rid of was his semen. Yep. That's hard to get past. How did your semen get inside the murdered woman's body when she was married? And clearly, you know, you had no business having that there at the murder scene. Um, 
Instead, the defense's argument was to introduce the idea of extramarital affairs. There you, you go. Have to. You have stating to. That, stating that a young wife whose husband had been gone for a long time could have impulsively decided to sleep with Tim Hedis when he picked up the dog. Yeah, okay. Un- unfortunately, the jury was made up of officers who were often away from home for long periods of time, and the argument resonated terribly. I'm sure that's not going <laughs> to go over well. <laughs> uh, uh, what's more, Tim Hennis had vehemently denied an affair with Katie. So, yeah, he's you know shitting on that own, his own defense there, basically saying, like, no, I never did that. Right. Um, I never slept with her. So, yeah, how, that's kind of hard to explain. You're seeming being inside her, homie, if you never did that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore on the 3rd of April, 2010, the jury took three hours to decide on their verdict and came back to the court to cite Tim Hennis as guilty once again. And okay. For sure. Double jeopardy. Time. We got you. Mm-hmm. We're, um, we're sure this time though. That's it, man. Finally. Yeah. Finally. Jesus. He got, he got his 20 years of freedom and, you know, got medals and, you know, was known as a swell guy there for a while, but, uh, it all came back around thanks to DNA. Yep. Um, at sentencing, Gary Eastburn was asked to speak. After the murders of his wife and children, he and Jana had eventually moved to England in 1988, after all. So they did ultimately move to England. There, he'd met a nurse who he'd married, and after a few years of living in the UK, they'd moved back to America. When asked what he missed most about his family, Gary replied, them. I miss being with them. Wow. Of course. And That's a tough question. Yeah. Tim Hennis was eventually uh, sentenced to dishonorably discharged from the army and put to death and, and also sentenced to be put to death. Um, he was transferred to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, where he still resides this to this day. Um, and he's the only person who's been tried for, for three lifetimes after not being found or after being found not guilty and guilty verdicts. Um, mm. However, he is unlikely to be put to death due to the presidential approval for military execution, which hasn't happened since the 1960s. In February of 2020, the Court of Appeals uh, for the Armed Forces rejected his appeal, his you know his new appeal. Right. Uh, when and when interviewed by the Seattle Times in 2010, Gary Eastburn said, "quote I'm perfectly happy if he spends the rest of his life in jail. However, if they did execute him, it was no more than deserved. No more than he deserved." Mm. Um, a little bit about the surviving, you know, the baby that survived this um, as an yes. adult now. Jana. For yeah, so for years, Jana, the baby. Uh, struggled with feelings of uncertainty and guilt about not remembering her mother and sisters quote it's really hard to have feelings about somebody you don't know i understand that they're my mom and my sisters but i don't have any connection with them that i can remember god that feels even worse probably yeah you know she feels like she was just robbed and cheated of of these people's relationships in her life Mm -hmm. but with this but with this final conviction brought a sense of peace to jenna Quote, it has definitely given me closure. It makes me feel like I am more emotionally connected to the whole situation. For me, to, for me to be there and see all the emotion from everybody, my dad, the whole courtroom, that really helped me feel a lot more emotionally connected to my mom and two sisters. Mm, I bet. I can see that for sure. I bet. You kind of get to know a little bit about them, you know, and learning yeah. about this case. I know it's it's a horrible time in your life, in their yeah. life, but it keeps their their memories alive. Yeah. And of course, she's also suffered from uh, survivor's guilt. Although she feels some sense of closure with Tim Hennis back behind bars, there will always be a lingering question. Quote, my biggest thing is, why didn't he kill me? Why didn't he? I don't know, Janet Eastburn said. Because you were too young. That's too it. Too young and possibly, I mean, she doesn't have, you know, I'm, I'm, I, no I, I get the feeling that her sisters told her to go hide and be quiet, and that's what she did, and that's why she survived. I don't think he would have had no. any reserves to killing this child when he did what he did to her older sisters who were still very young toddlers almost 
But check this out, though. Let me tell you something really creepy. Um, when he was arrested in Seattle or when they found him, he was found in Seattle, Washington, right? Mm-hmm. When he got pulled in. Yeah. You know, he was living only 30 minutes from Jana, who her and her boyfriend also moved to Washington State to be as far from this as possible. What and he hell? just so happened to be 30 minutes from her, Lauren. I did not know that. That's fucked up. So was he planning on finishing this job at some point in time? It's hard not to imagine. I mean, that. what are the odds, right? What are the odds, dude? 30 yeah. minutes away. She that's, was like, man, that's, that's how the documentary ends. Like, she was like crying. And, and her boyfriend was there as well. And he was like, I just couldn't believe it. He's like, he's like, she lived in fear constantly, even though we lived across the country. He's like, and I used to tell her all the time, he'll never find us here. And all this time, he was 30 minutes from us. Wow. Ain't that terrifying, dude? Yeah, it's that, like, that's... it makes you wonder what else he had. That's why the, the brutality of this crime, the way he cleans it up, the way he composed himself. Psychopath, um, right? Also, do you... He has to be a repeat offender. There's got to be some other skeletons in this dude's closet mm-hmm. that he just wasn't tied to. Or, you know, what did he do when he was overseas? Like, I, I don't know, man. It's just, I just don't see how someone commits a crime like that and just goes completely clean for the rest of their life. It, it, it just don't make sense. Yeah. You know, we, we've talked about this multiple times with people who were wrongly convicted of murders and were like, how could they have committed this murder? This is This is not something that someone who was regularly a thief would do. Right. You know, or whatever, and it's, it just, it is it just different, rubs me man. the wrong way, man. It is man. shocking. It is something different. weird like about it. Yeah, man. Typically, this type of uh, crime scene is is it's done by a repeat offender. It is hard to believe he just did this and that's that. And exactly, exactly, that's, on a whim. And I know it was a, I know it was a rough time in his life. I know he lost his brother, and you know he was probably struggling with identity issues yeah just issues had a baby and he was financially as, struggling as usual financially struggling a lot yeah. of stress he was alone that night um you know there's there's a lot of things going on but still to commit a crime like this a murder this brutal i, I just i just can't see how it's just a one off thing that never happens again it's uh, i agree it goes against fun. everything we've we've learned from doing this podcast and studying so many of these crimes for so long it just Seems very uh, unlikely that that was his I, only crime. I wish I'd have looked into this case a lot sooner. I I've heard of this case uh, multiple times, and it's been suggested to us I think a few times. Oh, uh, speaking of which, who, yeah, <laughs> we totally forgot to mention and give a big shout out to the person who. Yes. she's probably been going nuts. Like I suggested <laughs> this case. Uh, I got it right here. Hold on. Let's Rosie, see. is it Rosie? It is Rosie. Yeah, I'm. Hold on, I'm looking her up. I saved it on Instagram. Right on. We'll get your actual screen your uh, screen name here, Rosie. We appreciate it. Yeah. Veteran. So Rosie Jane, uh, thank you for suggesting this among many cases on Instagram. We finally got around to one of your suggestions. <laughs> yeah, we got uh, your other ones in the backlog. Don't worry. Well, that's right. We'll, we can always revisit those when we need one. No promises that we'll do uh, all of them or any more. But we did this right. one, and it was because it was a great suggestion. So thank you very much, Rosie. Absolutely, great case, man. This could have been a Patreon case for sure. Yeah, this was this Fantastic. was one of those crazy ones. Like I said, guys, check out the documentary uh, on YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. If you just search Eastburn Family Murders, you'll see it's done by 2020. It's about 40 minutes long. It's a it's a fun it's a fun. Is it a one parter? Because they typically do case. like those eight part ongoing this, things. Uh, this was just a one parter. Yeah. Okay. It 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 finalized. Like I say, it had it had the it had the big picture. It had the whole summary, but they definitely left out some damning evidence um, throughout the middle of the the doc. But still a great watch. It's a great way to put faces with people. 
Um, it's a great way to see who everybody is because there's, there's testimony from everyone involved in this case, including the detectives that worked it, um, who were never, never without a doubt that, uh, that, uh, he was their guy. You know what I'm saying? That Tim was the guy. They were never, mm-hmm. they never doubted that shit at all. Yep. Which they, it makes them look like assholes in the documentary. Like once he gets proven innocent and they're just like, cause they, they <laughs> actually, the, the, the interviewer actually asked the detectives. They're like, did you read, you know, the book that you read, right? Uh, right. What is it called? The Innocence or something like that. What is it called? Let me see it again. The Innocence of something. Innocent Victims. Yeah. The true story of the Eastburn. Yeah. The the reporter asked him, he's like, did you read the book? And the, the one detective was like, no, I don't read fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, wow, this guy is, he's really sticking to it. But of course, he knew, he knew the end to the story already. So, you know, he looked like a big, bad, tough guy or whatever. But, yeah, crazy story, peeps. Yeah. Absolutely insane. Yeah. You know what else is insane? Putting What's aluminum that? and uh, uh, unnatural things in your armpits. Seriously. You can, <laughs> that is the most insane thing you could do right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but thank God, guys, that we, we have a solution for you. And it, it, you may know it. You may hear it. You may know it's coming. It's Oh My Gaia. It is. It's Oh My Gaia. They're an innovative, all-natural, deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guys, not only can you get all-natural deodorant, you can also get all-natural scented oils and beard oils, guys, as well. So it's a great way to smell great without covering your body in chemicals and cologne and perfume and then aluminum deodorant. You know, you can get you can get your favorite scent and deodorant and scented oil, and then there you go. You smell great all day. And there's tons of scents to choose from, from vanilla, cherry almonds, sandalwood, lavender, uh, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle. Uh, there's pear, sweet pea, sailor, barbershop, one of, one of my favorite scents. Very clean, very fresh. And also True Crime Pine. If you don't know where to start, that's a great place to start. True Crime Pine made especially for us True Crime guys. And because best you guys part is are, it's got our it's got our logo on it. It's a collector's item. Yes. So when you get done with the deodorant, uh, mm-hmm. you can wash that wash out that container and, and store your weed in it or whatever you want yeah, to put in there. Whatever you want. It's sealed. It's airtight. It's it's a little glass jar. It's yep. great. Um, but yeah, it has our old school. Uh, our mugshots logo. If you're if you're an OG true crime guys listener, when we first mm-hmm. started, we actually had uh, Lauren's front profile and my side profile, which looked like one person's <laughs> mugshots. Uh, they blew people, people's minds when they were like, "Wait, that's both of you? I thought that was one person." <laughs> yeah, people were always like, "Which one? Who's on the logo? Who's on yeah. the logo? <laughs> like that's both of us." But yeah, um, because you guys are true crime guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for fifteen percent off your order. That's C R E E P E R for 15% off your order. And you can do this on Instagram at shop underscore oh my Gaia, or you can go to ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. And guys, there is links to Oh My Gaia right below the description of this episode, as well as Tonic CBD. That's right. You know our primary sponsors are small businesses that give you offer you all natural products that help you stay healthy. That's where Tonic fits in, just like Oh My Gaia. And yep. as you know, not all CBD products are created equal from how the hemp is grown and processed to how it's formulated and delivered into your body. Every step of the process that goes into making the product affects your ultimate experience. Tonic has original formulas using CBD adaptogens, herbs, and food superfoods. Back in 2017, they started and they've been working to deliver the most effective and intentional sustainable products available. Tonic cultivates 
their own hemp from their certified organically uh, organic farm in upstate New York. That hemp travels only 30 miles to their state-of-the-art manufacturing and distribution facility where it is turned into a finished product and sent to you, ensuring only the highest quality vibes at every single stage of the process. Their farm-to-bottle CBD plus botanical blends are uniquely formulated to provide targeted support where you need it most. Each and every high-quality ingredient is thoughtfully selected for its ability to support and enhance the benefits of CBD, resulting in a more effective, well-rounded, and consistent wellness solution for your mind and body. Now, they have a bunch of different blends depending on your needs. Chill is one of my favorites for helping with anxiety. It has ashwagandha, lemon balm, and passion flower to deliver a super calming effect. But it's also really cool that they use black seed oil in a lot of their blends as well. If you don't mm-hmm. know, black seed oil is a hell of an antioxidant, and it's great for your immune system, but it really just scratches the surface of what that superfood can do. And it's really cool to see that it's combined with CBD like this. Um, it's also easy to verify the quality of their products. They have a microchip uh, thing in the product, that the tube that it comes in, which allows you to tap your phone on the top and reveal the third-party lab reports, product information, details about their farm, and even helpful blog, po- blog posts to provide with uh, some CBD education. So a lot of these CBD companies out there, you don't really know what you're getting. You know exactly right. what you're getting with Tonic, and they link everything with their products. And you can watch the whole process go down in their Instagram stories if you check check out Tonic's Instagram page. That's how I found them and reached out to them because I was like, this company yeah. really is very transparent about how they're creating this product. And that that is something I'm looking for when I'm putting something in my body. I want to know where it's coming from. Absolutely. Um, so with the values rooted in quality, integrity, and sustainability, Tonic is committed to creating plant-based wellness products that are good for the people and good for the planet. Visit tonicvibes.com to learn more and use code CREEPER for 20% off your order. That's tonicvibes.com. Use code word creeper for 20% off. And the links for all of our sponsors are always in the description. If you just want to go in there and find it. Absolutely. Absolutely guys. And also links to Patreon. That's right. Because today is the day you're hearing this on. If you're hearing this on March 16th, when this came out today is the day. If you sign up for Patreon, you will be pleasantly surprised. Or if you are a current $5 or up patron on true crime guys, uh, check out your feed. Hopefully your phone didn't blow up because we just dropped a shit ton of comment content <laughs> on there. Uh, you will now have access to, uh, on the $5 tier and up on True Crime Guys, you will have access to the True Crime Guys Patreon exclusive every month, uh, JTB every Friday, Strange Shorts every Monday from the Sandu, uh, from the Sandu platform, as well as Sandu Stories every month from the Sandu platform. And then also Lauren's new show. Lauren, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah. No, you're talking about the five-minute murder show. I am. Yeah, I've got one episode so far. I need to work on the second one, but uh, I suppose on the 16th, we can drop that first one. It's Perfect. still a work in progress, but it's got a video element, which none of our content typically has. And so, mm-hmm. you know, picture some of those YouTube channels where they, you know, they tell a story and you can actually see them. And then there's you yeah. know, photos and things like that mixed in to kind of immerse you. And it's only five minutes. so I love those I, channels. Yeah. So I tell a story of, of a murder case, you know, beginning to end within five minutes. And that'll be on Patreon on the $5 tier. So yeah. I'm going to be trying to put one of those out a week. Um, maybe it might end up being biweekly. I can't make any promises because of the work that goes into it and also having to keep up with all of our other stuff. Right. Um, but it is something else you know, for you guys, uh, you know, on the Patreon page, just to show how much we appreciate you all and your support. I want to provide as much quality content as we can. So yeah, just another thing. As well as, as well as higher thoughts. I forgot about higher thoughts as well. So, uh, the 12 or so episodes that I have of higher thoughts season two, uh, will be available very soon as well. I'm thinking, are you not entertained? 
yeah, right? It's it's so much content. I just hope you guys don't have, have too much trouble sorting through it. If, if you do, you can go on the Patreon app. There's a search bar there at the top, and you can kind of weed through all the stuff. For but the price of one gallon of gas, you can get all right. of this content. <laughs> <laughs> that's our new freaking slogan. I love it. I love it. That that's that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. I was I was gonna say the coffee thing, but no, the gas is way better. Way one more gallon nice. of gas. One gallon of gas. Or hundreds of episodes of True Crime Guys and different if episodes and different content. Right. Hopefully, if you're hearing this episode in the future, it's done. Went back down, but uh, yeah. If not, now it's going at up this bud. time. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's we're not we're like. not even to summer yet. We're gonna hit seven bucks. I bet we'll see. Oh Lord. All, All right. right. That about does well, it, y'all. Guys. Yep. Have a great oh, week. Oh, guys. Oh, I forgot about the, the, the Spotify album. True oh, Crime shit. Guys, uh, Killer Mixtape 2 is going to be in stores hopefully today. If it's not in stores today here on March 16th, then uh, look around for it. March 16th, 2022, if you're hearing this in the future, uh, we have now we'll have two Spotify albums available, Mixtape Volume 1 and 2. So Which go check are, those out. If, you, if you're not aware, they, are, uh, they consist of the intro songs from our different episodes. Yes. We yes. hand-selected the best ones and threw them together in an album for you guys. Yep. The second album will have 14 songs on it, so hopefully it's enough to keep you guys jamming for a little while. Hell yeah, buddy. All right. Well, we'll All see right, you guys y'all. next week. Keep creeping. Keep creeping. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was True Crime Garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime guys in the desert. We like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk get you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder charming. You hush your mouth, boy.